is M. Aaron Way. I currently direct the Bullis Disease Clinic at the Brigham, and I have no relevant conflict of interest, just to get that out of the way. Um, so after today, you should really be able to diagnose and treat pemphigus and understand the latest evidence for current and future treatment options. So let's get started with a very, very brief review of pathogenesis and diagnosis, as most of you are familiar. Um, so pemphigus vulgaris, as you all know, is a devastating disease that affects many of our patients. These are just some images of patients I've treated in re recent months. Um, it's primarily autoantibody driven. Um, so binding of these antibodies and can actually cause a disease phenotype in itself. So when strategizing about how to treat these patients, you really need to focus on targeting autoantibody production. Let's start with a case. So a 68-year-old woman presents with two-month history of widespread painful erosions in the mucosa and skin. And as you can see here, um, she has an erosion in the buccal mucosa near the retromolar area, some erosions in the skin folds, and as well as crusted erosions on the trunk and not, not shown also on the scalp. Okay, so typical patient. So a biopsy was performed showing an acanthalytic dermatosis on H&E. What is the first step in confirming the suspected diagnosis of pemphigus vulgaris? I want you to think about it for one second. This is an easy question for most of you. So, um, so in, unlike in HS, tissue is essential for the diagnosis of this disease group. So for all autoimmune antibody-driven disease, direct immunofluorescence, which stains for the antibody in the skin, is really the diagnostic modality of choice, as you all know. Um, intercellular IgG is seen in close to all patients with active disease, and it has great sensitivity and specificity of, of, of over 90%. Um, so what are some other testing modalities for confirming the diagnosis? So serum studies are really helpful adjuncts. So um, they're quantitative and they correlate with disease fluctuations um, in activity. I find them really helpful in planning my tapering and useful in predicting flares. I'll talk a little bit more about that later on. And as you know, the two most common methods are ELISA and IIF. One caveat is there ten tends to be a spectrum in terms of the pathogenicity of these antibodies. The more potent pathogenic antibodies are directed against the extracellular one and two domain of Desmoglein. And as you know, antibody levels don't always become negative after treatment. And healthy people can have anti-Desmoglein antibodies as well. And non-Desmoglein antibodies have also been found uh, in patients and they may play a role as well in disease. So back to the patient. Okay, so she had a biopsy performed for DIF showing the classic feature of pemphigus vulgaris with, with strong intercellular deposition of IgG and C3. She also has serum studies which had a positive IIF and ELISA for desmoglein 1 and 3. So in our clinic, we use both tissue and serum like in this patient for diagnosis of pemphigus vulgaris. So now that we have the right diagnosis, let's move on to treatment. So this is what I'm most interested in. So the patient came in to me from an outside provider on 80 milligram of prednisone. So what are your thoughts on next steps in treatment? I'm gonna give you guys a second. Okay, so before I talk about what we do, I wanna present the result of the seminal RCT that was published in the Lancet in 2017. It had 91 patients, which was quite large for this rare disease group. So in essence, what they did was they had two groups. One group, they gave them prednisone alone, tapered over 12 to 18 months. In the other group, they gave them early Rituxed, 
and an early PRED paper over three to six months, what they found was in the Rituxx group, almost 90% versus only a third in the prednisone group were in complete remission off of therapy at two years. And the Rituxx group also had earlier remission, lower risk of relapse, and less severe side effects in the prednisone group. Okay, so based on this, this is really a no-brainer, and other studies that came before this, rituximab now is really a first-line agent for people with PV. And um, in June of 2018, it was approved by the FDA as the first-line treatment for moderate to severe pancreas. So in our bolus disease program, we consider Rituxx really first-line in nearly all patients. However, this patient actually did decide to wait um, she asks, what are the chances I will need Rituxx later? So it turns out almost a third of patients with moderate to se severe PV will eventually fail conventional therapy and require rituximab. And the patient also asks, is there evidence that early rituximab treatment is beneficial? So studies have suggested that early Rituxx treatment in the first six months of disease onset is associated with higher rate of complete remission, longer lasting remission, and lower cumulative dose of immunosuppression. And several studies have also suggested that relapse after Rituxx is associated with delay in initiation of rituximab. So in our clinic, unless there's a strong contraindication, uh, we try to get patients on rituximab as soon as possible. So she then asked, what about my risk for infection? So it's a good question. We worry about this a lot. So according to this one German national uh, registry study, the risk of serious infection across all autoimmune disease uh, using Rituxx is a quite low. It's about five per 100 person years. And I apologize about the, the, the graphics here, but as you can see here, the, the risk of in pancreas is quite much lower than for other dermatological diseases such as lupus, which is shown here. Um, there is a risk of fatal infections. Um, they did find about 3%, but the caveat is these patients, almost 100% of them were on other immunosuppressive agents as well, such as cyclophosphamide, azathioprine, methotrexate, prednisone at the same time. Uh, uh, so, 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 yes, uh, well, well, either prior, so 41% brain and 78% they received some kind of other agent uh, right after they received the Rituxx. But 98% had been on other immunosuppressive agents. And most um, infection just interestingly occurred early within the first seven months of treatment. So good question. So the patient agrees to Rituxx, uh, which dosing red regimen would you choose? Okay. Um, so as you all know, there are two common dosing re regimens. The RA dosing, which is a fixed dose, one gram every two weeks times two, and lymphoma do dosing, which is um, based on body surface area, weekly times four. So according to one meta-analysis of almost 600 patients over 30 studies, there was no conclusive evidence one regimen is better than the other. However, they did find that greater than two grams per cycle was associated with longer duration of complete remission. Um, there's a recent study that was just presented at the 2018 SID, and it's gonna be impressed shortly, that showed that lymphoma dosing actually may be superior in inducing complete remission, and they also found that BMI was a negative predictor of response, and the study came from Penn. Um, so in our center, we before even these uh, results came out, we always intuitively dose people who are average size with either R8 or lymphoma do dosing, but someone who's on the higher extremes of weight and height, we typically prefer the lymphoma dosing by body surface area. 
So the patient asked next, what are the chances I will respond? Re sorry, respond. Um, as you all know, rituximab is extremely effective, so the efficacy in literature is between 60 to 100%. In our experience, it's really only a small minority of patients don't respond completely. Um, some interesting hypotheses as to why patients don't respond. So there's genetic polymorphism in the population uh, in the FC fragment of the IgG receptor uh, that results in ineffective antibody-mediated killing by uh, rituximab. Um, so how common is this? According to one study, almost a quarter of, uh, of healthy people have this polymor uh, polymorphism, and it's even higher in autoimmune patients. In uh, lupus patients, it's about 44%. And antichimeric antibodies have also been found in some patients who have been treated with Rituxx previously. Okay, so what is the current evidence for the use of other steroid-sparing agents in place of or along with Rituxx? Okay, so azathioprine is a is an old drug that's been used a lot. There's two notable RCTs. In one RCT of 20 patients, there was no significance uh, in terms of remission, death, or relapse compared to steroid. Another our RCT similarly found no difference in the first nine months, but did find there was a difference in severity score and steroid dose in the last three months of a one-year study. Mycophenolate is another agent we use a lot. There was a big R RCT of 96 patients. Uh, that did not show any advantage over um, prednisone. Um, but they did find that mycophenolate group has shorter time to respond and longer time until relapse. Um, however, the infection rate was actually higher in the my mycophenolate group. So what about azathioprine comparing um, I, uh, mycophenolate and azathioprine? So the study is really mixed on this. One study did find that they're similar. Uh, another showed that azathioprine may be superior, and another found that um, mycophenolate is actually more effective in patients who failed azathioprine and prednisone. Methyltrexate is a drug we use a lot in other rheumatological conditions, but there's no randomized controlled trials for pemphigus, but there appears to be a partial to complete steroid sparing effect in 70 to 90% of patients. Um, Dapstone has been used as well. Um, in maintenance phase, it showed some steroid sparing effect, but one RCT showed really no evidence is better than steroid. And then cyclosporin is not my favorite, given it really is a T-cell targeting drug. Um, there's conflicting evidence on whether there's any steroid sparing effect in pemphigus, and there's one RCT that show no conclusive evidence that it's better than steroid alone. Um, Anti-TNF, interestingly, have been used. So that this is because TNF-alpha is found to be elevated in serum and the blister fluids. Uh, the one RCT with Imbril um, res had inconclusive results, and another using infliximab, again, did not have any conclusive result. But they did show there was a significant drop in the desmogene one titer. Um, IVIG um, is really useful in patients who can't tolerate immunosuppression, given it's immunoprotective, and in patients who need rapid control. Uh, there is one RCT with N of 1, um, a single patient crossover double-blinded trial in which I wish I thought of that, right? Um, so the, the patient essentially received either six months of either IVIG or placebo. Um, they found that this patient had um, lower mean prednisone and improved disease and uh, lower desmoglein indices while on the IVIG compared to this placebo. Um, as you all know, IVIG can be used with rituximab. Uh, one notable publication is the New England Journal publication from 2006. Uh, in which they gave basically lymphoma do dosing weekly times three weeks, followed by IVIG repeated twice over two months, 
followed by monthly IVIG over four months. Uh, in this study, they had 11 patients. They found no significant side effects, and they found that 82% of the patients had remission um, for two and a half years. Another study that was just published from a single center of 123 patients following patients who were treated with IVIG and other immunosuppressive drugs, including Rituxx, found that the mean time to disease control was rapid, about six days, and time to complete remission is 1.7 months. So I think IVIG is really helpful in getting people controlled quickly. Um, so the clinical pearl here is in our clinic, we typically use Rituxx early, but we also add prednisone and another a agent concurrently. Once the disease is under control, I taper off the prednisone first over two to three months, and then secondarily, I, I taper off the, uh, the other drugs over four to six months. Okay, so back to the patient. So she was concurrently started on steroids, Celsep, and Rituximab, but developed transaminitis. Um, so Celsep was stopped, and we opted to stay on systemic prednisone alone. So she did respond. So here are her before and after pictures right here. Um, so uh, basically, as she showed, th this picture was taken about four weeks after she got her rituximab um, at lymphoma do do dosing along with pulse steroid and um, daily steroid, 40 milligrams daily. And then her prednisone was tapered over a five-month period. Okay, so now that she's doing well, should she be worried about relapse? So the likelihood of relapse after rituximab is quite high, it's between 40 to 80%, and we see quite a bit of re relapse in our population. Um, so given this information, she's worried, and she's asking, are my at low average or high risk for relapse? So what are some predictors of relapse? So in general, regardless of treatment modality, increase in desmoglobin level predicts relapse, and I find this really help helpful. You just draw a blood test uh, and follow pa patients that way. Another study found that um, if you randomly biopsy people of their normal skin, you, if they have a positive DIF during remission, it also predicts relapse. I don't think that's very practical, obviously. Um, what about some predictors of relapse after rituximab? It turns out that clinical severity and concurrent treatments do not predict relapse, but higher relapse is associated with um, positive desmoglobin during remission, and lower risk of relapse is seen in late repopulation of B cells and higher CD4 count at any point. Uh, so in my practice, I tend to follow desmoglobin indices and CD19 or 20 for B cell repopulation, and I do it at baseline and every three months. So she then asks, does another cycle of rituximab during my remission help prevent my chances of relapse? Right? So it's a good question. Unfortunately, there have been very few studies on this with really no definitive conclusion. There's one small study of 19 patients where they found no additional benefit by giving someone a preventive infusion of rituximab at six months. The caveat of the study is they only gave one cycle of the lymphoma dosing instead of the weekly times four. Another study that was just published of 11 patients where they did with, they, they gave them one gram of Rituxx every six months. Um, Sometimes they decreased the frequency to yearly after 18 months until they achieved a negative desmoglobin level. They found that at six and a half year, 100% of all patients remain in complete remission, and they found no significant side effects uh, during the maintenance phase. One person did have sepsis, but it was during the active treatment phase. So we do offer um, preventative or early repeat Rituxx in patients who are at high risk for, for relapse. So what if Rituximab doesn't work for her anymore? 
Okay, so that brings me to the next section, which is future treatments. And in the interest of time, I'm just gonna broadly go over three categories, um, more potent anti-CD20, other ways to target autoantibodies, and cell therapy. So as you all know, there's actually more potent anti-CD20s uh, out, out there. Um, Valtuzumab is a second generation anti-CD20 that's more potent than rituximab. It's been used in, in one case report of a PV patient who was refractory to rituxx, and this patient had complete remission after one cycle for 22 months, and they relapsed and remission was obtained again after the second cycle. Ofatumumab is another second generation anti-CD20 that's more, more potent than, than rituxx. Uh, it's been used in the case report of a patient who became a resistant to Rituxx after developing, interestingly, anti-chimeric antibodies. However, the phase three trial was terminated. However, the decision was not linked to the safety of this drug. Um, no results have been pu published on this. What about upcoming options for patients who need rapid control of their disease? So one really interesting new target is this neonatal FC receptor. So many of you are familiar with this. So it basically transports IgG across cells and protect it from intracellular catabolism and in turn prolong the half-life of IgG. So to put into perspective, the in human, the half-life of non-IgG immunoglobulins is about one to two days and the half-life of IgG is about 10 to 21 days. Um, results from the phase one study of uh, monoclonal antibody targeting the neonatal FC receptor, CENT001, show that two-thirds of patients had reduction in disease activity by day 42, and all patients showed decreasing de antidesmoglobin antibodies by one month. Um, phase two trial results from another monoclonal antibody targeting the neonatal FC receptor that's a little bit harder to pronounce. I'm gonna try Afgartigimod, um, showed that 50% of patients had disease control in one week and two-thirds had disease control in four weeks, so quite impressive. What about another way to target B, B cells through the BTK kinase, which is essential for BCR-mediated proliferation and survival. Um, so importance of BTK is shown in germline mutations of patients with Bruton uh, agammoglobinemia. These patients have low to absent level of peripheral B cells and serum levels of all immunoglobulin classes are low. Um, so results from phase two study of a BTK inhibitor show that half the patients um, had disease control by week four and two-thirds met and had disease control by week 12. Um, there are other BTK inhibitors out there, as you all know. Um, there are some of them li listed here that are used for ma mainly CLL. So other B cell directed target, a lot of you are familiar with the anti-BAF. So BAF stands for B cell activating cytokine of the PNS alpha family. It's a potent B cell activator. Um, so um, an anti-BAF humanized antibody VAY736 um, is currently in phase two for pemphigus, although uh, no results have been shown in any of the me meetings so far. Um, it's also being studied for other indications such as RA, um, CLL and, and MS and Sjogren's as well. Um, other anti-BAFs out there that are already on the market, you're all probably familiar with these for, for lupus. Okay, so looking beyond the drugs, so this is really kind of the exciting kind of future therapy, the living drugs, right? Uh, I wanna quickly review regulatory T cells. So T-Rex, as you all know, are important in maintaining immune homeostasis and promote immune tolerance to self-antigen. 
So ex vivo expanded autologous T-Rex have been used in type 1 diabetes and GDHD. So they tend to enhance nat natural immune regulatory ability without global immunosuppression. Um, so phase one open label trial of ex vivo expanded T-Rex in patients with active pancreas is currently enrolling. Um, and patients will re receive a single infusion of uh, autologous expanded T-Rex over a three-year study. So stay tuned. So a lot of you, how many of you are familiar with CAR-T? A couple of you. So this is really spearheaded from the, uh, the lab of Dr. Amy Payne at Penn. Um, so CAR-T stands for chimeric antigen receptor modified T-cells. So these are basically engineered cytotoxic T-cells uh, that express um, a, a receptor for the antigen of choice. So CAR-T cells basically have an antigen-specific antibody fragment on the surface and infused with a signaling do domain that direct these cells to kill the antigen of choice, right? So CD19 CAR-Ts have had success in clinical trials for uh, mainly B-cell leukemia and lymphomas. So in Penfigus, so we, we, we would be using basically, instead of a receptor on the surface, it would be a desmoglein molecule, right? So this is kind of a schematic here. So basically these CAR-Ts will um, express desmoglein-3 on the surface, and then they would basically um, directly target anti-desmoglein-3 B cells only. And desmoglein-3 CAR-T therapy has been shown to really induce histological and serological remission in preclinical mouse models of pemphigus without any off-target effects, so very exciting. So in sum, um, I hope today I showed you that rituximab is an effective first-line treatment for pemphigus. In our clinic, we try to get patients on rituximab within the first six months of disease onset. We use um, desmoglein indices in CD19 and 20 to guide our treatment, and we offer preventative rituxan patients at high risk for relapse. Uh, the treatment for pemphigus is evolving, um, particularly in those who fail rituximab and those who need rapid control of disease. Um, so in the future, the more potent anti-CD20s can offer an alternative for patients who fail rituxan. The neonatal, FC uh, neonatal FC receptor antagonists and other B-cell targeted therapy uh, really offer a good option for patients who need rapid control of their disease. Uh, expanded T-Rex offer patients in a treatment option without global immunosuppression. And finally, CAR T-cells really offer hope for the ultimate cure, okay? All right, thank you. And this is my contact in case you have any questions after the session, thank you. I, I, I watch them. So I follow them typically every three months after remission, and then I, I check their desmoglein titer. So a lot of times these patients will come in, right? Many of you know they come in, they say, oh, I have like one little sore in my mouth, or I have like, I'm starting to get these like little erosions, right? And, and then you can biopsy them. At the same time, I check their desmoglein indices. So I always check it when they're in remission, and I see if they're coming back up when they come in with their nonspecific skin erosion, right? And then if they're climbing back up, then I tell them, like, you're likely to, to, to relapse at some point. Uh, we should probably just give you another do dose of Rituxan. Um, and in patients with very high risk of re relapse, I tend to just give it to them preventatively. Yeah. I had a patient years ago, mm -hmm. just oral pemphigus. She was on steroids for about two years, and she worked with me, and we got her off the pemphigus. She took Bastion also. Mm -hmm. Into the admitted and Wow. So yeah, so there's case reports of da daptone working, but as you can see, a lot of these drugs 
have been reported in case series, but they didn't really pan out in the randomized controlled trials, but whether due to the fact that prednisone also works really well or um, they just have a lot of side effects. But dapsone is a relatively benign drug. I don't think it's a bad idea to, to use in certain patients with da dapsone. But in that case, I wonder if the patient actually had MMP because dapsone works beautifully in patients with MMP of the mouth. Just like even sometimes I have a patient who's on 25 mil milligrams daily and he's completely clear on just dapsone alone, yeah. Um, I'm sorry, say that one more time. Grovers. You know, so, you know, gro Grovers is interesting, but, you know, there's really no, so a lot of these therapies that we think about are targeting the autoantibodies, so those wouldn't necessarily work for Grovers because there's really no autoantibodies. But the ones that protect the keratinocytes, uh, such as da Dapsone, or some people have used tetracyclines, um, that could probably be hel helpful in Grovers, and we do use antibiotics in, in, in Grovers, yeah. But the, 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 the drugs that tend to protect, protect the keratinocytes from splitting are, are more helpful in that case. Um, but, so yeah, so, but I don't think they're related, yeah. Any other questions? All right, thank you guys. Uh, standing between you guys and the plenary session, and this is my email, anyone with any questions.